The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown presents The Palace of Wayward Dreams, Episode 4. Elizabeth drifted to the bench and touched its hard surface. She was relieved to find that the bench was cold but not moist. She seated herself, straightened her skirt, and waited for O'Malley to speak. All right, he said, and crossed his arms over his chest. You've been more than patient, and you deserve an explanation. After a long pause, Elizabeth said, I hope you're not waiting for me to disagree. O'Malley smirked, but the levity quickly melted from his face. His brows slanted, and his voice sounded gruff. The man we are to meet, he said, was a colonel in the British Army. He was also a civil servant for some while. But most importantly, he is a respected scholar. For many years, I was his apprentice. O'Malley wiggled his jaw from side to side. Well, first I was his clerk. I was very young, younger than you, in fact. I helped with menial tasks, kept his books, organized his papers. What he saw in me, I'll never know. I was a foolish boy, a ne'er-do-well. He took a great risk hiring a scrappy Dubliner. He taught me discipline, and he taught me more than that. We had a ritual, you see. Each evening, when the work was done, he'd pour two tumblers of brandy, and he'd ask me questions. O'Malley shook his head wistfully. Sir Shanley is the wisest man I ever met. Those conversations we had in the light of the fireplace shaped me into the man I am. He was like a father, said Elizabeth. But more than that, said O'Malley, he was a teacher. And what I am about to tell you must never leave this yard. We shall only speak of it in private and only when I say the coast is clear. For sixteen generations we have kept our secret and it is imperative now more than ever, that our world remain clandestine. Do you swear to protect this secret? Do you swear to take it to your deathbed? No one had ever spoken to Elizabeth in this way. The severity of O'Malley's words was etched in his expression, and his youthful face seemed to age decades in that moment. Elizabeth felt emboldened. Her satirical instincts faded from her mind. Gravely, she replied, Yes, I promise. O'Malley stepped closer until he was standing next to Elizabeth. He turned his chin downward and he seemed to speak to his own lapels. We are a secret order of scholars and investigators, he whispered. Our purpose is to study the uncanny. As you have witnessed, the world is full of strange events and most of us would choose not to believe them. We ignore and overlook the incidents we do not understand. We see our lives as sane and logical, and all else must be fiction. But it's not, Elizabeth whispered back. There's something more. It is our cross to bear, said O'Malley, to believe when others do not, to use the tools of science for things that seem irrational, 
to record this litany of incredible events and, when necessary, to intervene. Intervene? As you did with Miss Grayson, said O'Malley. Where the uncanny would do us harm, we must defy it. But why sixteen generations? implored Elizabeth. Where did it come from? We've said enough, said O'Malley. Now we'll get some shut-eye. And God willing, we'll wrest Sir Shanley from his troubles, and he'll explain the rest, just as he once explained it to me. Elizabeth emerged from her guest room and rubbed her sleep-encrusted eyes. The afternoon catnap had done her well, and she couldn't believe how deeply she had slumbered. She tapped at O'Malley's door, then opened it. The room was empty, except for the remade bed and a pair of opened suitcases. Elizabeth scoured the house for signs of life, but even Lady Shanley was nowhere to be seen. Only when she rounded a corner into the dining room did she spot O'Malley seated at the long table, a napkin tucked into his collar. O'Malley was dressed in a black evening coat and necktie, and his crisp white shirt looked freshly pressed. He had saved these garments for a formal occasion, packing them in the undermost reaches of his baggage. He was showered, and his oiled hair was neatly combed. Even from a distance, Elizabeth could detect a dab of cologne. He held a knife and fork above a large round plate, where a half-eaten steak floated in a pool of mushroom sauce, along with peas and the emptied skin of a baked potato. The sight of Elizabeth startled him, and he hurried to chew the sinewy meat and swallow. "'Good evening,' he said, ripping the napkin away from his neck and struggling to push the heavy chair backward. "'No need for decorum,' Elizabeth grumbled, seating herself across from him. "'How's the grub?' "'The grub,' said O'Malley, rolling his tongue inside his cheek, "'is delicious.' Just then, Lexi arrived from the kitchen, stood at attention, and bowed. "'Good evening, miss,' she said. Do you have an appetite? Do I ever, said Elizabeth. I'll have what he's having. When the steaming dish arrived, Elizabeth's stomach roared with hunger, and she nearly forgot to arrange her napkin. The utensils shook in her hand as she quartered the meat and stuffed ungainly chunks into her mouth. Savory flavors flooded her taste buds, and she relished the potato covered in cream and minced chives. Elizabeth had not been impressed with the meals aboard the steamer, whose cooks seemed more interested in presentation than taste, and she stifled moans of pleasure. When Lexi returned with a bottle of wine, she said, "'Is everything to your liking?' "'Compliments to the chef,' Elizabeth replied. She masticated for a moment before murmuring, "'And thank you, Lexi.' This glimmer of gratitude was all Lexi needed to break into a downturned smile. Elizabeth regretted being so tepid before, and she wanted to make amends. She couldn't pinpoint why she had been so quick to dismiss Lexi. Was it her servitude? 
her prettiness? Surely it wasn't jealousy. If O'Malley wanted to misbehave with a maid, then that was his business. Lord only knew how long the man had remained a bachelor, and a little dalliance might do him good. Not that they had much in common. Lexi could barely read, much less keep pace with a mind like O'Malley's. But perhaps the Irishman was fond of shooting fish in a barrel. He had dressed for the occasion, and it honestly surprised Elizabeth how dashing the man could look when he attended to his wardrobe. Do you cook much? O'Malley asked. Uh, me? Elizabeth said. I burn things. Lexi giggled. She slapped a hand over her mouth, but the giggle persisted. I'm really very good at it, Elizabeth said. Give me any ingredient you like. Ham, eggs, Thanksgiving turkey. I'll turn it into charcoal. She shot a smile at Lexi, who struggled to contain her amusement. Will there be anything else? asked the maid, setting the wine bottle on the table. Yes, said Elizabeth. Fetch yourself another glass and join us, will you? O'Malley stopped chewing. Lexi stared. It was as if the air had been sucked from the room, leaving a vacuum of perplexity behind. Oh, come now, Elizabeth chided. Who's to know? The Shanleys aren't even here. And what difference does it make? You've served a thousand meals here, so you might as well enjoy one. O'Malley sipped his wine bemusedly, then raised his glass toward a chair. I suppose we're playing by American rules tonight. Lexi looked pale as she entered the kitchen, then returned with a wine glass and a plate full of food. She arranged them on the table, leaving several spaces between herself and O'Malley, and wriggled into the seat. Lexi moved timidly, and Elizabeth pondered whether the girl had ever sat down in any chair in the entire house. Elizabeth set down her knife and fork. Any idea what's wrong with Lady Shanley? She knew the question was blunt, but there was no sense ignoring the obvious. She half expected O'Malley to scold her, but the professor only nodded into the final morsels of food and said, Trauma, perhaps. Trauma, really? I suspect she knows that Teddy's out, reflected O'Malley, but I doubt that she knows where or why. Never underestimate denial, especially in a house like this one. Did you know her before? Elizabeth caught Lexi in the corner of her eye. The maid was listening intently. No, answered O'Malley. I knew of her. But in those days, Sir Shanley had an office. He kept his private life separate. I met her only once. He hosted an anniversary party for a general he knew. I can't imagine why I was invited. I never opened my mouth for fear that they'd arrest me for trespassing. It doesn't make sense, Lexi blurted. When both pairs of eyes turned to her, she bit her lip. She whispered, A gentleman like that. He fancied the drink, of course. Every man does. But opium, that's for derelicts and dockers. It does seem strange, concurred O'Malley, and it contradicts everything I've known of him. But men do change. It's been some years, and age affects each man in a different way. His letters sounded more despondent, Elizabeth asserted. Or that's how they read to me. O'Malley tossed the napkin on the table, straightened his tie, 
and rose to his feet. Well, I for one am tired of questions. It's high time we find some answers. A pair of drunkards tottered toward them, and the steam of their breath accentuated their phlegmy laughter. One of them sang a few bars, the other tried to harmonize, but soon they clapped each other on the chest and laughed harder. Each had an arm over the other's shoulder, and together they zigzagged down the street, stopping only long enough to spit into the murky darkness. Elizabeth watched them as they approached. This was her first glimpse of Lilac Way, and the teetering men looked like a standard sample. One of the drunks swiveled sideways and tried to focus his eyes on her. His mouth agape, the man slurred, "'Goon away, love!' "'I certainly hope not,' countered Elizabeth. Elizabeth knew she should fear such burly lushes, but she also knew that she could outrun them, or even knock them over, their feet were so unsteady. Luckily, the men only chortled at this, blathered something to each other, and staggered round a brick corner. "'Gutter snipes,' cursed O'Malley. Elizabeth shrugged. "'I just wanted to hear the joke. Must have been a gas.' They crossed the street, and Elizabeth heard the muffled oompapa of music behind closed doors, along with the racket of a hundred conversations, the clanking of glasses, and the shouting of gamesmen at their darts and pool tables. The pubs were sealed, and only a handful of men stood smoking in the dank alleyways. As they passed these spectral figures in scally caps, their hands deeply pocketed in their woolen slacks, a strange feeling came over Elizabeth. Not the dread and disgust she had expected, but a surge of excitement. She scanned the dog-eared posters on the walls, the ads for burlesque shows, the erstwhile windows filled in with brick, the blend of mist and smoke that wafted past the street lamps, the stench of something burning. She savored the clutter on the steps, the rubbish in the streets, the lonely barrels and drums, the pipes that jutted out of crumbling masonry. As they passed a narrow thoroughfare, she spotted a handful of men gathered on a rickety staircase, throwing dice on the wooden landing. The landscape should appall her, but Elizabeth was mesmerized. This was the place that good girls never went. This was the world that a professor's daughter was never supposed to see. Lexi pulled her scarf tighter around her face and wrapping her mouth and nose. She walked hastily across the puddles, and her eyes darted in all directions. The maid was not as brazen, and Elizabeth wondered what run-ins the poor girl had endured, cutting her way through slums like this. Over there, Lexi announced, her voice stifled beneath the woolen sheet. That's the one he frequented. The building was the same as all the others, a shadowy hulk with a large steel door. But unlike the others, a sign dangled over the street, its surface covered in Chinese characters. The sign was embossed and accented with gold paint. The image of a serpentine red dragon curled its body 
around the circumference of the sign, and its nostrils blew rings of smoke. There were no words in English, but the message rang clear. A man stood outside, his hands clasped behind his back. He was young and skinny, and his attempt to grow a goatee looked like pencil shavings around his mouth. He slouched inside his dark chongshan, the loose-fitting clothes that reminded Elizabeth of pajamas. His gangly arms dangled, and it was obvious he was bored to tears. Greetings, said O'Malley, removing his cap. We're here to collect our friend. The youth blinked at O'Malley cautiously. What name? he snapped. Sir Shanley. Now the man's eyebrows arched. Shanley, he said. His accent was thick, and it took Elizabeth a moment to realize he'd repeated the colonel's name. He jabbed a finger at O'Malley. You talk, Master Fung. Then he threw open the door and ushered for them to follow. Elizabeth opened her mouth, but by the time she thought of something to say, O'Malley was already plunging into the dark corridor, followed by Lexi. Here goes nothing, Elizabeth mumbled. At the end of a black tunnel, a room emerged. Its lanterns were sculpted from stained glass, and the bulbs inside glowed dimly, casting a somber light over the sofas and rugs. Across each piece of furniture reclined a separate human form. Some patrons were covered in lavish blankets, others dressed in finery, and a few, in the corners cloaked in shadows, were naked. Hair blossomed from flabby chests, breasts tumbled sideways, legs were bent at Romanesque angles, their nether regions slyly covered in afghans and drapes. Opium pipes were everywhere, with handles of ebony and ivory, silver and bamboo, their bowls carved into elephant heads and demon faces, knots and hieroglyphs. Patrons lay sideways, dipping their pipes into the opium lamps stationed on the floor. They sucked the smoke into their lungs, exhaling with practiced ease, like artists painting the air with their vapor. Women in kimonos knelt on the floor, their knees pressed into pillows as they helped fit pipes into waiting lips. Their faces were painted like dolls, their hair was wrapped and coiled, and their fingers held each apparatus with the delicate care of seamstresses. An eerie sweetness permeated the fog, a syrupy incense that made Elizabeth feel faint. The gallery was subdued, except for the heavy respirations, the slow slither of limbs, the low moans of fleeting ecstasy. Never had the sight of decadence so amazed her. Elizabeth lost sight of the Chinese youth, but she followed O'Malley so closely that she nearly stepped on his heels. They reached the far corner of the room and passed through a beaded curtain. They filed into a tiny office, and there, seated behind a lacquered black table, sat Mr. Fung. You've been listening to The Palace of Wayward Dreams, Episode 4, by Robert Eisenberg. 
The Adventures of Elizabeth Crown are produced by Backpack Media, LLC. Original music by Naoya Sakamata. If you like what you're listening to, you may also enjoy The Mysterious Tongue of Dr. Vermilion and Other Stories, the first book in the Elizabeth Crown series. For more information about the exciting field of uncanology, visit elizabethcrown.net. <laughs>